Hey everyone! Welcome to Emmaus Way. If everyone would kind of find your way to the center. And if the kids want to find their way, if you're going to sit on the fun teal blanket. Um, we wanted to, our call to gather um, this afternoon is from an article written by Dahlia Lithwick um, in response to the massacre yesterday. Um, and then we're going to have sort of a space for silence, um, which I'll explain, and then we'll end in this communal prayer. Let us now call together to worship. We also have to show our children our real faces tonight, the faces of pain and yes, terror, the face of trauma that in America, people can be mowed down for their faith and their deeds, and that we are at the point when the lawfully purchased gun will not even be a coda to the conversation about massacres in synagogues, unless we force it to be. Last, yesterday morning, last night, Jewish families performed a ceremony ushering out the Sabbath called Havdalah. Havdalah literally means separation or division, not between people, but between the sacred and the profane, between darkness and light, between holy and every day. Our job this weekend will have two components. We will not only have to do this within our lives, but for the country. We will try to show our children that there are stark differences between love and hate, between hopelessness and hope, and between truth and fabrications. We will also have to show our children what kind of people we want them to be because as it turns out, when you show people who you want them to be, they believe you. That is the nature of human beings. It is excruciating, but we can perhaps honor those who fell in their own house of prayer this week by remembering the division between light and dark, between hope and hopelessness, and by showing our children that we need them to choose to stand in the light. We're going to enter into a time of silent prayer, but I also invite you, if you want to lift up a word or a phrase that you are feeling in the wake of this week, um, you may do so now. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Amen. It's so good to see so many of you um, and some new faces here with us tonight. I'm Molly, um, one of the pastors of Emmaus Way, and we're really glad to have Tim, the founding pastor, back with us tonight, leading us in a dialogue. But before we get, kind of as we're getting going and before the kids go upstairs to hear from Ben about ordination, because Ben's ordination is next Sunday in this community, so I would invite all of you back for that, we are going to sing um, our community song for this season, God Believes in You. And I am not going to start us off, but Ben or Rody can. So. I don't have paper, so it's all Ben. When you start Yeah. 
thanks so much. Kids, we will see you later. I hear you're playing some Skittle games tonight as well. Yeah? This time, Ben can actually eat the Skittles. Um, <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't know this, um, there's been some tension around the Skittles and that Ben and I sometimes take them when we aren't supposed to. Anyway, um, so glad that you all are with us. If you are new to our community or perhaps aren't receiving our eWay social or our weekly and would like to, um, please fill out a yellow card. This week in particular, a lot of emails were sent out about different rhythms that are happening in the life of our community. So if you would like to kind of be more engaged in um, the rhythms of our church outside of this Sunday gathering, fill out a yellow card. That would be great. Um, one of those rhythms that we've invited you all into is um, that we are going to bear witness and reclaim kinship between now and Advent in more public space with different missional partners. Um, and we are inviting you to, yeah, just show up. And so I wanted to make you aware of two that are happening um, this week. First, thank you to the 20-plus folks from Emmaus Way that came out to Cannes Assembly yesterday morning. Over 600 people were there um, at the public assembly, which was huge, and it was a really, really remarkable morning of holding these judges accountable. Um, so thanks to all of you who came out. Um, and then two other opportunities this week. On Tuesday night um, at 7 o'clock at Duke Chapel is the Convicted Concert that Sue's Long, back in May, two Mays ago actually, um, led us, kind of the singer-songwriter project she did with women in the North Carolina prison. Um, those songs, and actually some of those women, will actually be in Duke Chapel on Tuesday at 7 o'clock performing. Um, so I would encourage all of you to come out. It's 7 to 8.30, Duke Chapel. I'll be there. Would love to see you. Shoot me an email if you want to sit together in the very large chapel. Um, so that's on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, for those who have kids and are wondering what you would like to do, and you don't have a plan yet, Calvary United Methodist Church, they are having a trunk or treat at 4.30 um, in this parking lot. So you could really Halloween hop, I suppose. Um, and they have asked, they, come, they came to me and said, you all have kids, please tell them about trunk or treat. So that is your um, invitation. If you would like um, to trunk or treat Wednesday at 4.30, um, in the parking lot. The only other announcement I have is Ben's ordination. Next Sunday at 4.30, there will be folks from the Religious Coalition here with us as well, um, and I would really encourage you all to be here if you're able. It's going to be a special night for the life of our community. Are there other announcements that need to be made? Okay. Well, we are really excited to have Adam here leading us in songs of prep as we prepare for Tim's dialogue around witness and fictive kinship. So thanks for being with us, Adam. Hi, everyone. I love that about a Mayus way. <laughs> Sincerely. Um, that we're all like just thoughtful and present and here. Uh, I'm going to invite you to... If you don't know some of these songs, that's totally fine, especially this first one. Uh, Pete Seeger wrote this to be sung with many voices, so lend your voice. There's a river of my people, and its flow is swift and strong, flowing to some mighty old. Though its course is deep and long Flowing to some mighty ocean Though its course is deep and long Many rocks and reefs and mountains Seek to bar it from its way but relentlessly this river sinks its brothers in the sea. But relentlessly this river sinks its brothers in the sea. 
find us in the mainstream Steering surely through the foam Far beyond the raging waters We can see our certain home Far beyond the raging waters We can see our certain home Across the line in a little southeast of Meridian She loved her brother, I remember back when He was fixing up a 49 in He told her little sister, gonna ride the wind Up around the mountain and back again He never got further than Vietnam I was standing there with her when the telegram come for Lillian Now he's lying somewhere about a million miles from Meridian She said there's not much hope for a red dirt girl Somewhere out there is a great big world That's where I'm bound And the stars might fall on Alabama But one of these days I'm gonna swing my hammer down Away from this red dirt town I'm gonna make a joyful sound She grew up tall and she grew up thin Buried that old dog Gideon By a crepe myrtle bush in the back of the yard her Daddy turned mean and her mama leaned hard Got in trouble from a boy from town Figured that she might as well settle down So she dug right in Across a red dirt line just a little southeast of Meridian She tried hard to love him but it never did take It was just another way for the heart to break So she dug right in but One thing they don't tell you about the blues when you got them You keep on falling cause there ain't no bottom There ain't no end At least not for Lillian Nobody knows when she started her skid She was only 27 and she had five kids Could have been the whiskey, could have been the pills Could have been the dream she was trying to kill There won't be no mention in the news of the world About the life and death of a red dirt girl named Lillian Who never got any farther across the line The stars still fall on Alabama Tonight she laid down Let him down Oh, without a sound In the red dirt ground Oh 
What you gonna do when the wall comes down? When the wall comes down? What you gotta do is let it lie. Oh, let it lie. And in the gathering darkness, right? To never go back. It was built by man, and you can tear it down. Tear it down, tear it down. Oh, step back, Jack, from the darkness. What you gonna do when the shackles fall? When the shackles fall? What you gotta do is melt them down. Oh, melt them down Turn them into tools and make a garden On the prison ground Or oh, turn your chains to roses, child Tear it down, or oh, tear it down Or oh, step back, Jack, from the darkness But while I'm here I'm gonna sing just like a songbird What you gonna do when the hunger's gone? When the hunger's gone I'll pity the child who goes without That goes without and Give him no reason to falter on his way down It's a beautiful world The painful child Tear it down Oh, tear it down Oh, step back, Jack From the darkness But while I'm here I'm gonna sing Just like a songbird Oh, while I'm here I'm gonna sing just like a songbird And what you gonna do when the wall comes down When the wall comes down What you oughta do is let it lie Or let it lie and in the gathering darkness vow To never go back It was built by man And you can tear it down Or tear it down Or tear it down Oh, step back, Jack, from the darkness I don't think I've, I can't remember the last dialogue I've done. It's been a long, long, long time, and I have missed it magically. It's been, uh, it's been such a treat to uh, think and reflect on what an amazing farewell you guys uh, gave a couple of weeks ago. Wow, that was beyond mine and Mimi's wildest expectations. I've never felt so incredibly loved. You are just a, a, a lovely, lovely group of people. I'm excited tonight to talk a bit about the... Good Samaritan, a story that probably you're familiar with, uh, one that's always been one of my favorites in lots of different ways. But I want to give us an opportunity to stand and offer uh, the peace of Christ or just a hello to each other. Uh, typically, if you're around somebody that you don't know, certainly introduce yourself and say hello, grab some food and beverage, and then I'll give us a shout in a couple minutes, and we will get down to it. So thanks, everybody. So like I said, it is great to be back and see your lovely faces again. I guess I was here a couple weeks ago, but uh, it's just really fun to be back and honored to be sitting in the, the stool, Molly, which I relocated, if that's okay. You were a little low for me over there, so I couldn't quite see you. So I thought, well, I'll, I will elevate this operation here. Well, I don't know about you guys. I, I, do, I don't know what your news watching habits are. Um, we are news junkies around my house up until 
oh gosh, I, I mean, we've made it to about a couple of months ago and it's just gotten to be too much. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, um, you think about this, accusations about the migrant caravan uh, calling probably the most vulnerable in our society and probably the most courageous in our society, dangerous. Um, yesterday's synagogue shooting is beyond the pale, uh, other than the fact that how many black churches have been bombed and shot up and how many things like that have happened uh, throughout our history, but certainly in the last several years. But uh, even to the point of, uh, it, 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 perhaps for you, it, it didn't cause the level of sharp agony that it should, uh, merely because it's happened so many times. Uh, 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 bombs, pipe bombs sent to uh, exclusively uh, targeted enemies of the state. Um, the, uh, I try not to think about ecology and what's happening to uh, the, the Antarctica, the North Pole, the oceans. These are things that, that I, I try. And we really could go on and on. And over the last several weeks, the whole idea of um, uh, the disregard of sexual violence and the proclivity toward blaming victims for that violence, putting people in power who disregard that essential point and being put in power uh, with the support of a patriarchy that looks like me and is led by people who look like me. Um, the news are, are just, it's hard to watch. Um, tonight we're going to read a story uh, that would imply all those endangered and wounded people and every one of those events would be named a neighbor. Um, of course, I'm going to be preaching to the choir of, of you people who already get this. But just a question before we jump in. How are you doing with the cumulative impact of the news that I describe and other things that, that and, and this huge, not just American, but worldwide move that, that seems to imply that neighbor is someone who looks like me or perhaps someone that I don't fear. Um, how, how are you doing? Well, I'll, I'll say something. God's been really anti-gun pretty much my entire life, and I'm really reconsidering that because I feel like um, we're getting to the point where I'm not going to be safe. Hmm. Yeah. Safety is not a given. We're on the civil war. Yeah, yeah. Sure. The others. There's another thing that's, I'm sorry, my voice is It's another thing that's kind of happening the last like, couple months. It's been kind of like, you know, people who look like me getting called, police called on them, you know, just yeah. kind of like randomly. And yeah. so it's kind of like, what activity could I possibly be doing where this could happen to me? And mm -hmm. there are so many different things, like with my job different places that I have to go, and environments that I'm in where I'm not as familiar, it's not my neighborhood or state where I find myself, and I'm just more and more wondering and looking over my shoulder and trying to figure out how do I present myself in the most friendliest, non-threatening way, you know, physically as possible. And I know that's impossible, but it's still a lot that works in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, when when we're afraid of barbecue Becky, uh, it, 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 we're we, you know it, we've we've dipped, but that's not a new fear, right? Uh, just a new attention for many of how commonly that is of particularly persons of color uh, being um, uh, being reported for doing what people do all day long. It's frightening, and as a parent. Uh, passing on uh, the kind of level of protectiveness that I imagine you're thinking about, that's, it's, that in itself is pretty overwhelming. Hmm. For me, the power struggle, like especially in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and how there are powers that be that are like trying to actively suppress people's votes, but then her level of like resilience and empowerment of people that she's connected with, it both is like, Crippling and also so inspiring. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like in Florida too, and Texas, there's, it's, yeah. while there's powers that are suppressing, there's also a lot of like resilience and excitement that's come out of the frustration. 
yeah, there's some serious uh, righteous badasses moving around these days that are worth pondering as well. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of hard questions from the kids. Yeah. A lot of questions I don't know how to answer. Um, the refrain from Dash Lightly is like, do, do people know about this? Whenever he hears about something, he asked that about global warming the other day, which was a funny thing to ask. I was like, yeah, yeah, people do. But it happens with a lot of things now. He's like, people should know. People should do something. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah, buddy, they should. <laughs> that should be on the list. That makes the list, right? Things to do, something to ponder. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing, so the art of, kind of the comic gathers from an article out of sleep. But what I found so poignant about the article, she says we must teach our children how to stand in the light. And I think I've just been thinking that we have forgotten what it means to be people of light and to stand in the light. And like how, like as adults, it's like a is there just no hope for like adults, right? Like for people who, uh, uh, yeah, is it really, are our children really the only hope for us? Mm -hmm. Like are we so far gone um, as a society? And I don't, I don't have the answer to that question, but I yeah, I mean, there's, I, we're going to think about that. Like, what, what do you pass on? And I, I was, uh, the, part of my job, uh, I teach a couple of classes on religious ethics and social issues at, at Meredith. So I, I teach 58 women that subject. And when I asked about the Kavanaugh hearings, I only had seven of the 58 that were watching. You know, and, and so you're thinking, wow, I mean, the, the level of impact on your life. Uh, and I went on to say, I got old on them, I said, People will be talking about this 30 years from now. As so I said, let's do some math. Let's say that you're partnered up and you decide to have a child when you're 30. Most of them are 19 or 20. Um, this person could still be on the bench uh, when, when your, your kid is born, right? So you, they started doing the math on that. But again, how do you pass on that? Because these are complicated conversations. And tonight, um, I, I, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, the only thing I have to offer tonight, um, and it's in the vein of what Molly was talking about, is uncomfortable action um, that, that I think builds beloved community. But I will say this, there is nothing more beautiful than beloved community, regardless of its cost. So if we're looking for a, a bomb in this, I think, I think that's it. Um, so. I want to talk a little bit about this parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. It's famous. It's one that I've talked on many times here and other places. Elizabeth, would you, would you read it for us? Uh, it, you'll notice the first few verses got cut off, but you'll, you'll catch it as, on your text as Elizabeth gets to that point. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. 
Thank you, Elizabeth. This is a phenomenally layered story. I want to start with, um, it's a, a context that provokes a story, a story that has a story in the middle of it. And I actually want to start today with a story in the middle, which is actually what you have in the, the bulletin text, is the story that Jesus tells. Let's look at that first, and then we'll, we'll work our way back to the context. Um, and I want to do this just to change a few terms, because the driving engine of the story is, is on the heels of the question, well, who is my neighbor? A, a pointed question. And I want to up the ante of the language of neighbor. Because a lot of times we use the term neighbor as people who we live near and we are polite to, as long as they're polite to us. If they keep the noise down, we'll keep the noise down. If they lend, we'll lend. There might be some baking involved too. But uh, typically we, we have kind of a, a, a sanitized notion of neighbor, and there's nothing sanitary about this story, right, in terms of bloody people on the side of a, a road being cared for. Um, so um, I want to use a, a different term. Um, anthropologists and ethnographers, especially when writing the histories of oppressed people, often use this phenomenon or term of fictive kinship. And it's a language of kinship that is not blood kinship. Let me give you a, a definition of this. Uh, one, one anthropologist put it this way. Uh, black institutions, such as churches, schools, families, communities, and social societies were fictive kinship. They were interdependent rejections of the way people of color were treated in our society. And quoting, the relations between black people and black institutions transcended rigidly defined roles and were communal in nature. Out of these social and historical experiences, a certain consciousness fostered what anthropologists term a fictive kinship, a sense of peoplehood, a collective identity because of black people's continued subordination in U.S. society. As a result of this kinship that was out of a racial identity, black people shared their cultural capital with one another. They developed their social capital together for survival and success in a segregated world bounded by the omnipresent forces of racism and discrimination, forces that limited their opportunities beyond what was within the black community. It's a kinship, a thickness of relationship that's formed out of survival. And to give you some examples of this, I, again, these were things that I had little or no experience with growing up. Uh, but in many ways, uh, one example in our society is that in, uh, if you've read Ta-Nehisi Coates' articles on housing, in the U.S., obviously, many black communities, there was no such thing as a mortgage until 60s and 70s and 80s if they were redlined. People bought their homes on contract rather than federally guaranteed mortgages, which meant if you missed one payment, you lost your home, right? Um, people who got wealthy, particularly in Chicago from the 30s to the 80s, used to say, hey, you're not working hard if you don't sell the same house five to ten times, right? Miss a payment, take it back, sell it again. It's a profit engine. Um, so we tend to think, as a, particularly people who come from privilege, that financial institutions, just like judicial institutions, work on our behalf. But that is certainly not always the case. And one of the things that happened in our society that transformed it was lending societies, right? If you couldn't get a loan at a bank, then we, like people like us, the 30 or 40 of us, would probably have formed a society of lending. We all have different incomes and different capacities, but when kids started like, you know, Ada wants to go to college, uh, you know, we would start talking about how do we help her get to college? Somebody wants to start a business, uh, how do we, we would all be implicated in this. And that's what fictive kinship is like. It's people who are bonded together, connected together in a larger story of oppression, but rooted in a present response to that oppression. This is the movement. When you look at HBCUs in, in America, most of them you can look at and say, you know what, that actually started in a church. That started in a church basement, in a Sunday school. What's happening upstairs, we probably wouldn't have thought of. It's just something absolutely amazing, given the giftedness of Rhodey and Elizabeth and people who lead that. But we would have thought, how could that be replicated? Because this educational environment that's going on upstairs is not guaranteed for our kids later in the week. Um, and we would have thought much more progressively about that. So fictive kinship is thick. 
It is progressive. It's courageous. It is implicated in terms of the community. And I would suggest when we look at the story of the Samaritan's response to a man broken on the side of the road, where do we see fictive kinship in this story? In what directions? What places? The, the Samaritan showing mercy on the beaten person, the traveler. Yeah. Takes, takes him on like a, a loved one. Yeah, he didn't give him a map. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't give him a hug. He doesn't give him a Band-Aid. He's securing the next several days of his well-being, he's giving him an open check, a, a, a loan per se of recovery. It's, a, it's an extensive response, one that I think is beyond what might be called for if you see somebody on the side of the road on the way home. Absolutely. Any other directions that you see of this? That's excellent. What, what do you think might have motivated that man? The Samaritan. You know, um, it, if I understand correctly, and I'm not certain I do, but you know, to be a Samaritan in that time was to be a person who did experience some level of oppression. Right? They were they were rejected by uh, the Jewish society at the time, and so he probably felt a kinship in that he had also been in a situation where he needed help. Yeah, I mean, he understands the core of his being, what it's like to be literally or figuratively on the side of the road by uh, perhaps the way he dresses, skin color, language, dialect, worship. These are all things that have been weaponized in our society, but this is a man who knows that. And he knows to some degree that if there wasn't someone taking an extra step for him, there would, it would be unlikely that he would survive such a circumstance. Um, all to say that's what's happening in this story is in some ways we would be wrong to say not normal because oppressed people have acted this way for a long, long, long time. And to some degree, we'll work our way back from this. Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor with a story of fictive kinship, that kind of thick, thick, thick kinship, rather than Clinton, but not Will. Uh, there's, uh, that, that's a, in itself a pretty remarkable answer. Um, so back to these amazing women that I'm teaching at, at Meredith College. Um, um, one of the things we've, we've been tracking through ethical systems in the West, which you guys probably know, I, I knew none of this stuff. I mean, my, my answer to what is deontology was like one word uh, uh, four months ago. But teaching these systems of ethics based on things like consequences or, or rules or ethics based on virtues, the kind of the, the systems of the Western world, all of us have been deeply influenced by all of those shaping of ethics. Now, they were all fashioned by men, and the, the ethic practitioner in all of those is in many ways the imagined English upper middle class gentlemen, uh, and this is how they would act in a situation. Uh, but interestingly, all of the great writers, John Stuart Mill and Immanuel Kant in those veins, appeal to this story as the core of their ethic. They're, whether it's a rule-based or a consequence-based ethic or a virtue-based ethic, the idea of who is my neighbor, Jesus is telling of that story because ironically, they're all Christians, right? They're, they're Christians crafting a vision of morality. And we've just finished, which has been really fun, the feminist critique of that, which is devastating. But the question I ask, have asked all of them is, these are at, at some level Christian ethics and why do they fail? Why does the church fail to be an ethical body? If you got many of you guys came out, if you remember the night Molly and I did a podcast with this kind of 25 year book on uh, resident aliens that talks about the power of the church to fashion a culture that is transformative to society. Um, there were some pretty interesting reviews. One of the best ones was from uh, Dr. Willie Jennings, uh, a, a uh, religious critical black theologian who said, if we're just confident 
that the church in itself, being the church, is going to change the ethical shape of society, then why is the church on the side of racism in so many places? I mean, when is it actually going to get on the side of, of making some changes? And so some of these rational ethics need some updating. And interestingly, uh, feminist ethics that look at these, like, how do we make society work, have often been referred to as irrational ethics or hysterical ethics, ethics uh, for using notions like stories or caring or emotions as legitimate ways to kind of fashion an ethical way of living. Interestingly, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uses some of these same irrational ethics to look at this same story. He looks at the two who do not act, a priest and a Levite, and then the Samaritan who does act to the wounded man and says, what is different in those three people? And he, he suggests this. The first two fail to act because of fear. They're asking the question, if I stop to act, what will happen to me? We've all felt that, right? I've seen somebody broken down on the side of the road and we watched, I don't know, Law and Order the night before. And you're like, I'm not sure I want to pull over. Um, but he said that the man who acts asked a different question. That question was, if I don't stop to act, what will happen to this human being? And it changes that dramatically. But he understands, and King says this, he understands that he has to put himself at risk to accomplish the task. He writes, the ultimate measure of a human is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where she stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk her position, his prestige, and even her life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, she will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and nobler life. What Dr. King is talking about there is fictive kinship and suggesting that risk was embraced because of that sense of kinship by the man who acted. The person I was reading this on, though, was another scholar who said, um, it made me think of Ben's work and others, he raised this question, what about the robbers? Does fictive kinship extend to them as well? As you hear that story, are they in on it? What do you think? Should risk be taken for them? And if so, why? The term you're using, Cliff, and you may have mentioned this, the um, Levitical law that says that if a priest or Levite touches a dead body, then they're unclean, that they're actually not allowed to touch it. So their religion was preventing them. So there's almost like a moral or a religious ethic that's preventing them from helping this man. And I think the same thing almost applies to the robbers. It's like, well, I can't help them because they're on the other side of the law. But it's interesting because the question that Jesus is answering in this parable is, it's not who shows love to the neighbor, it's who is my neighbor. That's the question that Jesus is answering. And so the Samaritan is helping someone that's against the law to touch potentially because he looks dead. And the robbers, I think, are the same. Yeah. And there's potentially some critique toward religious systems, uh, be it white Christian America or otherwise, that in some way compels us not to cross that boundary, right? Because there are counter-narratives in the, in the Hebrew scriptures that would challenge that notion of cleanliness, though Brian is exactly right. That is exactly what they're thinking about, right? I think one of the challenges is I, I, I have been um, watching kind of the, the I've wa we've watched the trilogy of white crime. What are they? Breaking Bad, uh, The Sopranos, and recently not as good, but Ozark, right? And the, the, the only reason that those stories work is like, especially in Ozark, it's a nuclear family with teenagers 
laundering money for the cartel, right? In our sense of prejudice, if they were people of color, we'd say, yeah, damn straight they're, they're, they're doing that. Aren't they all doing that, right? Uh, but we look at the ultimate disguise, the whiteness of these characters and say, oh my gosh, they can't do that. And we watch there, whether it's uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad or uh, uh, Jason Bateman and Lauren Linney, who are fantastic. They're great. And, and their portrayal of their whiteness committing crime. And so we tend to read these stories and go, I'm not a robber. This is crossing some side of boundary to imagine myself as a robber. I, th- there wouldn't be a circumstance where I would be hungry enough or sick enough or desperate enough to, uh, to steal or do things like this. And so to some degree, what's really interesting about this story is, and one of the authors I was reading is like, of course, fictive kinship looks at people who might be on, in this case, on the other side of the law because we live in systems that put people there. And so fictive kinship demands this radical interdependent humanity that says, I can't look at anyone in this room and say, you're not my kin. You're not my people. You're not my human. And incidentally, this is where Western religious ethics have failed, whether it's rule-based or consequences-based or virtue-based. The simple move to follow those rules, those ethics, and not reach out to others is to create your own three-fifths rule, right? Is that I would help Anna, except that Anna is not fully human. She's, I mean, there's not enough human in you to require that I act. And if you look at kind of the history of othering, you don't get very far. We see that every day in the news. If somebody described as less than someone else or more fearful than someone else, such that whatever ethical kinship we have doesn't apply to them. It's a great system. If you're in a position of making that claim, you can get off the hook for almost anything, right? So I promise we tell more than the story. Let's end with this. What do you do about a story about this, like this? And let's look at just the dance that happens that provokes the telling of this story. It's pretty remarkable. We have from Dr. King this notion that humility is absolutely critical because you can't take risks like this whole story without humility because who knows how you would act how I would act in that circumstance, right? None of us know, right? None of us know how we'll, I know when when our kids have fallen, I dropped Kendall off the roof of a shed we were building uh, down eight feet into grass that was filled with concrete blocks that we had from something that we was, and her body magically landed between the concrete blocks. I know I stood up at the top of the, the ladder going, ah, 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 and I know Mimi was running full speed from 30 yards away. You, you don't know how you're going to react. But Dr. King says, hey, this is the kind of humility that drives us to pray. The idea, because prayer is the thing that transforms our willingness to take the risk that's before us. What else do you do? We see from the text that it's the story of a confrontation. The lawyer comes in, the scriptural theologian, and he, he, he asks to test Jesus. He's not there to learn. He's there to test Jesus. It's a confrontation, but Jesus' responses are pretty remarkable. The response to the confrontation is a question, and the question is based on an agreed-upon authority. In that case, the biblical text, what is written in the law. He gives the person testing him a platform, the very thing that he probably came for to demonstrate while he was there. And interestingly, Jesus' question produces an affirmation. You've got it right. You said it right. You've read it right. You're smart. You've figured it out. That affirmation produces a justification, and I think this is the real trick to this, is the question, will Jesus reveal his craziness, his love for people that aren't like us in front of a crowd of people? That's the who is my neighbor is it's a trap. It's a perjury trap. Let me, let me get you to say what, I, what you don't want to say. And interestingly, Jesus responds to the perjury trap with a story. 
And it's a pretty amazingly unyielding and gracious story. There's some graciousness to telling a story and some subtleness, right? We've said this many times here. If Jesus loved the question, he would have told the story differently, right? Who is my neighbor? There would have been three wounded people and somebody would have walked by and chosen who the neighbor was. If that was a truly operative question that Jesus thought was interesting to answer, that's how he would have told the story. But he inverts that, and then from the inversion of the story, a counter story, he asks a piercing question. Who was the neighbor? The two people who looked like you? Or the one who does not? Who was the neighbor to the man in need? And the lawyer, the one who's come to test him, the theologian, is forced to answer, it was the man who showed mercy. What I suggest we see in this, in our crazy, crazy world, and I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to blow my stack. When I have seven women out of 58 watching the trial or the hearings, when, when, uh, when, when it's, you, know, you want to just scream and say, this is not enough. It's going to take more than that to heal the world that we live in. Perhaps Jesus has shown us something here. It's going to require risk. If, if we're not in the realm of putting ourselves at risk, we're probably not going to be putting many things right. I look around, and that's a silly thing to say to you guys, because I, I know how many of you have done those things, but it involves risk. It also involves humility. Uh, what Dr. King says to us is powerful. Humility drives us to find the resources that we need. Maria's amazing story that I heard two weeks ago, which I assigned that night to my class, and she's going to come read it to them, and they're going to write a paper on it, was an incredibly humble telling, right? That was not a story of personal heroism. That was raw vulnerability risk humility and the last thing that i think jesus shows us and and god help us figure out how to do this is an unyielding graciousness right at no point does jesus yield to the false agenda of those questions at no point does jesus tell a story of who a neighbor is as opposed to someone else where does fictive kinship start and where does it end jesus is unyielding there but he's also gracious in his unyieldingness. He does it in a way that the encounter seems to take 15 to 20 minutes, and he has led somebody to the very place they don't want to be. As we work this out together, I would suggest that that's probably the type of work, maybe the questions we're asking ourselves. How are you risking out of the kinship of your community? Uh, how are we making ourselves humble? And in some ways, how are we not yielding and the graciousness is a part of all of our lives. Um, thank you, guys. I think we've got um, absolution coming next. No, confession and absolution. I've totally forgotten. I drove, I drove tonight. I've forgotten the whole. I drove tonight to the reality center. <laughs> the car just, I pulled up and I said, you know, I don't think we meet there. I was here for a year after we met here, but that's what, my, so I'm off my game. <laughs> I had a very supportive mother. Um, I still have a very supportive mother, but she, when she heard me playing songs when I was young at coffee shops and stuff, she was being gracious to me and, and said, you know, do you think your version is better than the original version? <laughs> I'd say, well, of course not. And she's like, well, let's hold on to it then, and then we'll share it later on when it gets better. Um, all that to say, I'm about to violate that rule. If you have a chance to listen to the song by Margaret Glaspie, it's a beautiful song. Sad and selfish, but beautiful. Um. I'm a little rock. On a big mountain, nobody's calling my name, nobody's paying me mind. I'm a little drop 
From a big fountain Oh, I blend in And that's fine, fine And my sister, she Is gonna die trying With her heart ablaze In a fighting song Not me I'll be a dandelion Oh, give a gust of wind And I'm gone, gone Cause I don't wanna be nobody To anybody, no I'm good at no Once I was loved But I wouldn't dare take a compliment Or give a kiss Just thinking of being a pair Had me suffering and made me split Cause I don't want to be somebody To anybody know I'm good at no one I keep my head down And both eyes wide I don't look up I just side to side And I stay well kept So they can see There's nothing wrong with me It's just that I don't want to be Somebody to anybody know Oh, I don't want to be somebody to anybody know I'm good at no one I lay down by the river The shadows moved across me Inch by inch And all that I heard Was the war between The water and the bridge Turn to me Turn to me Turn to me Turn and drink of me Or look away Look away, look away, and nevermore think of me.
of the world so much to Adam uh, and to Tim for leading us um, tonight. Um, you're welcome to come to the table and wait if you would like. All right. What are we to do in times such as these? What does fictive kinship, living into the realities of the Good Samaritan, a story many of us have heard since childhood look like when from the ditches of our nation, from the very foundation of the earth, we hear voices calling out, who will lay down their hammer? Who will put up their sword and pause to see the mystery of the word? When the very foundation of the earth is calling out, carry me, carry me, carry me. It is in times such as these I'm reminded of the benediction that goes, the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. But really though, what are we to do? After the seven days that have plagued our country, the seven days of violence and hatred, but seven days that aren't new, right? What do we do as Emmaus Way? We come around this table every seven days. No matter what has happened, every seven days coming around this open table week after week is one small defiant act we engage in that holds both truth and love to propel us forward into the world. It is one small yet transformative thing we are to do because we do not do it alone. We do it with one another, and we do it with the God who set this table before us. It is this open table we come to when we don't know where else to turn. Every seven days, with weeks like this one, we come. It is this open table we come to when the world, and even our very selves, perhaps, seem filled with lament, scarcity and despair at what our lives will be like and what our children's lives will be like. But we come, for we however slightly need to be reminded of God's unbreaking kingdom and the shattering of evil. We come because we know that we are a people of abundance, called to hope, and called to not only teach our children how to stand in the light, but to stand alongside with them. It is this open table we come to to hear the words of the Talmud that we are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are we free to abandon it. It is this open table we come to to be reminded we are called to be a people like Maya Angelou reminds us 
to have enough courage, even after the seven days we all have just experienced, to trust love one more time and then one more time again. For this world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. It is this open table we come to to stop being a people of fear, but a people of fictive kinship, willing to risk. That is the table I invite you to this evening. Let us come and break bread for one another and pour wine or juice or hand a gluten-free cracker. And perhaps as you're breaking bread and pouring wine or juice, you are reminded that in the same way you are going to turn to your neighbor, your fictive kin in this space, we are also beckoned to turn to our neighbor, our fictive kin, outside of this space. Thanks be to God. So let us come to the table, pour wine or juice, bread, gluten-free cracker, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or the love of God for you, the peace of God for you. If you are new to Emmaus Way, we serve one another in this community. It is a little bit rowdy, but it is one of the most sacred acts I have ever come around. So I invite you to this table. Feel free to ask someone to serve you if you want, or you can. somebody else will come find you and serve you. Um, but let us come now to this table. <laughs>